Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is sociologist Mary Louise Adams of Queen's University in Ontario. We are discussing her book, Artistic Impressions, Figure Skating, Masculinity, and the Limits of Sport published by the University of Toronto Press in 2011. Gender stereotypes remain strong in North American sporting culture, despite the expansion of sports opportunities for girls and women. As we learned in last year's interview with Jennifer Ring, baseball is still almost exclusively male, and there is deep-rooted resistance to the inclusion of female players. Meanwhile, there are other sports that are regarded as being solely for girls or women. The idea of men participating in these sports is often laughable. Some of you might remember the Saturday Night Live skit of the 1980s featuring Martin Short and Harry Shearer as aspiring synchronized swimmers, with Christopher Guest as their effeminate coach. And of course, there is the 2007 comedy film Blades of Glory, starring Will Ferrell and John Heater as the world's first same-sex pairs figure skating team. Ferrell's character is aggressively macho and raunchy, while Heater's character, Jimmy McElroy, plays upon the commonly held view of male figure skaters. He is pretty, precise, and fond of fancy costumes with sequins and feathers. But the film breaks from the stereotype of male skaters in that, at the end of the story, Jimmy gets the girl. Mary Louise Adams opens her book with a discussion of Blades of Glory, using the film to point out the prevalent view of male figure skaters as effeminate and most likely gay. As she explains in our interview, the aim of her research project had been to examine how these ideas of gender and sexual identity came to be attached to contemporary figure skating. But as she investigated the history of the sport, she was surprised to find that the perception of skating has changed dramatically over the last century. Since the early 1900s, figure skating has gone from being an exercise in gentlemanly grace and control to an activity primarily for girls, straddling the boundary between sport and art. Mary Louise is herself a trained skater, and she draws upon that experience to explain for us the challenges of the sport. But more compelling are her discoveries as a scholar, showing how figure skating gained popularity in the mid-20th century, and how, in that new popularity, it came to be viewed as a feminine activity. To start the interview, though, I had to ask first, 
for Mary Louise's review of Blades of Glory. Uh, I was prepared to hate the film Blades of Glory, uh, but in fact, I actually really liked it. I thought it was a very funny film. I saw it with just one friend. We had the theater to ourselves, uh, which is kind of a weird experience to be in an empty movie theater, laughing very loudly at what I thought were a lot of funny jokes. I think what they did that was really good in that film was... They managed to do to to work with stereotypes without themselves making gay jokes. They made the um, uh, you know you're sitting in the audience and you're anticipating the gay jokes, but they always managed to veer off a little tiny bit and show up the uh, the places where the stereotypes would emerge as the kind of silly thing that we should be laughing at instead. Of, uh, we were laughing at the stereotypes rather than laughing with them. You know, oh, okay. so okay. yeah, I I actually thought the writers did a very good job. So now you're a, you, you're a skater yourself. I am a recreational skater. But you used to be a competitive skater, correct? Is that right? Never a competitive. Oh, okay. Skater. Then I misread. So tell I'm, me about your skating background, then, please. Uh, when I was very small, my parents, as kind of a social thing, had decided to join a skating club. And so it was something my family did. And so from the age of three, I was dragged along to the rink. Apparently, I hated it uh, for quite some time and used to sit on the bench and uh, have temper tantrums, I guess. And uh, But eventually started to like it and skated until I was a teenager, then... I don't know, it wasn't cool enough. And I wasn't a competitive skater, so it wasn't like uh, I was skating all year or had multiple pairs of skates or traveled like some of the kids that I did uh, skate with. And, you know, I think I always felt a bit sorry for myself that we weren't able to participate to the same level. It's very, very expensive sport as some of the other kids. And then I got back to it when I was in grad school, so not until I didn't pay any attention to skating for probably 15 years and uh, got interested in it uh, kind of intellectually and then started skating again when I was in my mid-30s. So saying you weren't competitive, but you did have, did you have training in figure skating? Oh, yeah. You you did go to contests. I did skate. I did. So. Uh, you can still be very serious and spend a lot of time as a recreational skater. And, you know, probably in grade nine, grade 10 would have spent like four days, four evenings a week at the rink sort of thing. So yes, had skating lessons. My skating teachers were very, very important people Mm -hmm. in my life. Um, And my social life, a lot of my very close friends would have been involved in the sport but we didn't actually think of it as a sport what we were doing we just thought we were mm-hmm. skating in a way that i don't kids now would think if they were figure skaters that they were athletes we certainly never would have thought of ourselves that way okay, okay. so what led you then into uh sociology and the sociology of sports uh i had in graduate school my training was actually in the history of sexuality i was in a sociology program but i did historical sociology i was very interested in uh i had done a women's studies degree as a master's degree and then a sociology of education degree uh as a phd and i was very interested in questions about gender and sexuality and i had been asked as a grad student to write a paper on some aspect of popular culture and I was going to write about uh, the TV show somebody just reminded me of this the other day the TV show 30 something I don't know if you remember Mm -hmm. that show Uh, but 
I have I was literally sitting in the dentist's office and found an old out-of-date magazine where there was a photograph of Kurt Browning, a figure skater, Canadian figure skater. He was the world champion at the time. Uh, and in the magazine, there was a photograph of him. And in the article, they referred to him as a macho figure skater. And this was just too weird for me. I mean, I was, uh, you know, my brother had skated and quit because it wasn't really appropriate for boys to do. Mm -hmm. um, I was aware of all the stereotypes. And I thought I would explore figure skating something from my past in this paper and so that's how I got back into the skating project and uh, uh, was bringing my sociological background in gender and sexuality studies to look at something I'd been doing historical work I wanted to do something contemporary I wanted to um, look at contemporary media portrayals and that sort of thing so that's where the skating came from but a big part of this book is uh, is historical, and mm -hmm. something that you say at the start of the book is uh, that you were surprised when you started doing the historical research. So, so what surprised you? Well, it surprised me that it turned into a historical book, and uh, what what happened during the research was the big surprise was I thought I was researching this kind of girls' sport to mm -hmm. understand the way that the uh, reputation of something or the classification of something as a girl's sport, what the implications of that would have been for boys and men. And then as I started reading a little bit more, and you don't have to go very far into uh, the background of skating to find this out, but I had never heard after, you know, a long time involved in the sport that originally skating was done primarily, almost exclusively by men. Mm -hmm. And so that was surprising to me. And that then became the thing that motivated most of the project. So this thing that I had thought was going to be a very contemporary project turned into a very historical project and uh, partly my own training. But also that was the question that needed to be answered in my view. Okay. All right. So if we can, I'd like to start with the history of figure skating. <laughs> and uh, you describe in the book the, the origins of skating in the Netherlands, and then it's moved from the Netherlands to England in the late 1600s. And uh, can you start out by telling us about that that move, please, and, and the popularity of skating in England, and how English skating was different from skating in, in the Netherlands? So the skating that was done in the Netherlands, and there's, there is evidence, uh, very uh, old historical, archaeological evidence, for skating-like activities in lots of different places. Mm -hmm. The skating that was... The interesting thing about skating in the Netherlands is they find evidence there of the first use of metal for blades. And that's what, that's what makes skating into not just kind of sliding across the ice, but to be able to do the things that we see as skating, which is making edges, going in and out on an edge. So in the Netherlands, skating was very... Democratic is the way lots of people refer to it. It was done as a form of transportation in the winter. The winters were different, uh, and waterways were different, uh, and the freezing of the waterways allowed transportation between villages. And you would apparently, and you can see this from people who will be familiar with those Dutch paintings that are, you know, very, very crowded scenes, beautiful, beautiful scenes on the ice. And you'll see people who look like they're from all different classes, men and women, adults and children. So you have the English 
I want to say nobility, but that's not right. You have like the, the royal family is in exile in the Netherlands and they're learning how to skate from the women in the Dutch court. They go back to England and where it doesn't always freeze all the time, they have to wait a few winters to try out their new skill that they learned in exile. And what happens in England that is so different and on other parts of the continent as well is that it's not this widespread useful activity. It becomes a very kind of exclusive activity done by very elite people. Royalty, nobility, aristocracy, that sort of thing. And the kind of skating that they do was distinguished in a lot of the literature from kind of the goofing around of young boys on frozen puddles and that sort of thing. So uh, the the class differences are very are very strong, and then also the purpose of the activity. And it's not that they weren't trying also to do things in Holland, but the general, it was a very useful, widespread social activity in Holland, too. So something I found interesting in these historical chapters is that already in the late 1700s, the early 1800s, there were guidebooks instructional manuals mm. on how to properly skate. So could you talk about those? What, what is the proper way of skating for an English gentleman? Well, the very first guidebook was from 1772, and it was, it was written for very elite people, obviously, and there's these incredible, when you go to the British Library, you can see some editions of this book where there's colored, actually colored drawings of what a skater should representing what a skater should look like so you have, have men with ruffled neckerchiefs and collars and long frock coats and uh hats and so on but the idea in the late 1700s and the early 1800s was that one should cut a very pleasing figure that skating was a form of expression and expressing uh, feelings and emotions. And, of course, they didn't have the kind of skates we have today. So they were, they were limited technically in what they could do. They could do the inside and outside edges. And what they did to try and make their skating expressive was that they used their heads, their faces, their facial expressions, and also their arms. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of arm movements um, and the different... Uh, moves had very evocative names, the Apollo, the Flying Mercury, things like this. And so that was uh, up until maybe the 1830s or so in, in England, they would have had those things. Uh, there's another very famous book that came out in about 1812, 1813 from France. It was even more about skating as something that other people would watch you do. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, a lot more fine distinction about how somebody would, you know, hold their hands or, or the angle of the head or and lots of very serious metaphors about how to convey your expression and that sort of thing. But it was generally something that was uh, supposed to look good, supposed to look nice. And what it was really not supposed to be was something that was about going quickly or in any way doing movement. So if speed might make you look ungainly, you would not, mm -hmm. you, you would not try to assume a quick speed at all. Mm -hmm. So this was an activity that was not only exclusive to class at this point, this was exclusive to gender, correct? 
Yes, yes. And, you know, there are always exceptions. Like, there were always exceptions. You you find uh, some indication of, uh, you know, the one female skater in the 1830s or 40s here or there or the other place. But overall, the category of skater was a male category. And we know, for instance, that there was the world's first figure skating club started a Apparently, it seems, started in Edinburgh. The exact date is not, it's under some discussion. Uh, it's, it's argued what it, what it was. But late 1700s, and it was exclusively a male club. And there were particular things that you had to do to be able to um, be perceived as uh, acceptable to the other in terms of your skating skill and that sort of thing. But you go through some of the records and they're, they're men of nobility, you know, princes, uh, m- m- the marquis, the, you know, the duke, the earl. There's all sorts of titled mm-hmm. people who were setting up these clubs in the... Mostly they would have been in the 1800s and not in the 1700s. Okay. So when did skating competitions begin? You can certainly find remarks about competitions in the... Even in North America in the 1860s, the 1870s. Um, but it's hard to find out, you know, you just so-and-so won a skating competition or they're just kind of mentioned in passing, but there's no, we don't really have that many details about them. Other researchers may have found more than I found on that count. In Europe, 1870s, 1880s, organized competitions where they started agreeing on rules that people in different countries would follow the same rules. Like other sports, you know, the 1880s, 1890s, around the same kind of time frame, there was the first, I think, unofficial world championship. Uh, I hope I'm not getting this wrong right now. 1890, mm-hmm. around there, before the first sanctioned championship, which I believe was 1896, somewhere around there. And there was actually even in Vienna in the 1870s, 1880s, there were, was actually competitions for women. And then the most interesting thing to me about the history of competitive figure skating is that in many jurisdictions, not, not immediately with the rise of the International Skating Union, but in many jurisdictions, men and women competed against each other in the same events, something that my students find shocking, right? And, uh, but uh, is a very interesting piece of the history of the sport. And I was going to ask about that. Well, one, I was going to ask, when did women start skating? Mm-hmm. And how was it that, uh, because you find in other sports, soccer, baseball, in the late 1800s, the men are saying, no, we, aren't, we cannot compete with women. So how right. was it... I guess, justified to have men and women competing together at this time. Right. Yes. So women start skating in bigger numbers. And of course, like I said, there'd always been exceptions. And you find like the odd anecdote about uh, a particular woman in a particular city who was famous for skating. Women start skating in bigger numbers in the 1860s. And you find records in some of the clubs, like one of the most famous clubs in England, where they are actually required to save a particular number of spots for women. Of course, like many other uh, social and sporting clubs at that time, women could only join some of these clubs through their connection to a male relative, a husband or a father, that sort of thing. 
but there is there's definitely growth of women's skating and in North America the carnival the winter carnival as a big event is some i mean you need women in your winter carnival as part of your spectacle and that sort of thing and then there's the rise of recreational skating like there's all sorts of really interesting uh history about recreational skating in New York City for instance in the mid and late 1800s and there's some interesting research that's been done on that in terms of competitive skating for women and the fact that they competed together i wasn't able to find anything justifying that from the output what you do find is a little so like how did they make that decision in the first place that men and women would skate together i can't answer that question what we do know is some of the arguments that people made when for instance the international skating union uh there's a very famous woman called Madge Sires and she entered the world uh figure skating championship and in 1902 and ended i i i can't remember the actual details but you know under the initial of her name or something and there you are and this woman Madge Sires shows up and she competes against the men and she comes second and you need to remember that skating championships at this time were very small affairs like there might have only been six skaters four or six skaters so mad sires comes second there had been no way legally to keep her out of the competition because it had not been explicitly stated in the rules that they were only there for that the competition was only open to men of course the members of the international skating union then get together in 1903 and they think mm, we have to do something about this so what we can see is some of the arguments of some of the people who argued against the prohibition on women's competitions and basically they are just making arguments that the women and the men do the same thing so why don't they compete against each other why don't they compete with each other i guess in the same event and uh the arguments that the ISU people were making were how could a judge possibly judge a woman with whom he might be involved or interested or something and women wear long skirts how can he see the, how can the male judges see their legs to see what they're doing and uh those kinds of arguments and it seems clear to me that the fact that they were skating together in the same competitions does have a lot to do with the class background of the sport and the fact that it did that skating clubs were very exclusive environments and must have been social uh social clubs in a way that golf clubs other elite kind of membership clubs are about constructing yourself also as a class and that it would have they just would have been experienced of skating together on the same ice at the same time doing the same things to me it seems to be something about the the combination of social and sporting activity in the same very private environment people of the same class and the fact that their technical abilities were similar they were doing the same things and uh and also of course there was as much as they tried to change it there still was this kind of legacy of it being something uh nice to look at and something expressive and so you read all sorts of arguments about how it was very compatible with femininity mm-hmm. and so whereas running was unseemly for a woman skating a woman could still look nice and feminine while doing it 
the really interesting thing about that argument was that you would think, okay, well, if it's okay and it's very appropriate for women, then doesn't that make it inappropriate for men? But you don't start reading that for a few more decades. And I think we have something to learn from that, right? That we don't have to be so oppositional in our definitions of what's good for one is therefore, by definition, not good for the other. So in saying that they did the same things, what did the what did the competitions look like? Because certainly they weren't doing quad jumps no. and, and so no. yeah. They did have different parts of the competitions. Uh, they were doing what we would call free skating, but the free skating was, it would be attaching a series of turns, maybe a little spin, uh, a kind of spiral, the arabesque that skaters do where they lift one foot up behind them some gliding movements. They weren't necessarily early on doing jumps. They thought that jumps were not pretty or um, and were a little ungainly. And so that wouldn't have been something early on. And then they were doing mostly figures. Okay. So the kinds of things we no longer do in skating competitions or you no longer see the school figures, the figure eights mm-hmm. with the different kinds of turns and small circles, the big circles... Uh, the serpentines, the largest part of the competition would have been figures. Mm -hmm. But then there was also this free skating part, which was about seeing who could arrange the movements in an interesting way. And you do have diagrams in the book of of these figures that they did, (laughs) which were remarkably, remarkably Mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. And even with the much better equipment that we have now, the, the blades, the sharpening technology... I'd say most skaters, including very, very high-level skaters, would not be able to do the same kind. It's it's just it's a skill that one yeah. that uh, skaters don't train in anymore. But every so often you'll see somebody, Kurt Browning is one. Um, I've also seen and just seen on television, Brian Orser, another skater. They would have, both those skaters are of an age where they competed with figures. Um, they'll do some of the, as part of an exhibition, some of the old-fashioned figures that have the very very complicated patterns and they're incredible like they're just incredible like the drawing and if you can imagine what an iron cross looks like the Mm -hmm. metal the iron cross drawing an iron cross on one foot you know people wrote their name like this was considered a bit of hot dogging you would write your name (laughs) on one foot you know with with your skate blade on the so you would have been, would you have been trained to do school figures? Because I was going to yeah. ask you to, to say just how difficult these are. Well, it's interesting. Cause, yes, when I was a child, we did patch. Um, uh, we called it patch, the training session where you do the figures. You would have the ice surface would be divided. And on the boards, there would be little marks along the boards. So the ice would be divided into 20 equal segments. And you would go out and take your little segment of ice and practice the school figures. And, of course, as kids, we hated it. Like, it's quiet. There's no talking aloud. You must stay in your own little place. You're, like, doing this over and over and over. These relatively difficult things. It's just this year, I think because I'm getting older and I'm trying to look for some uh, uh, calmer way of skating that maybe isn't quite as jarring on your joints as jumping and so on. So I've started trying to do figures again just this year. I can't believe how hard they are to do. And, uh, you know, I've gotten a little bit better over the course of the winter. And there's, and of course, there's no place to actually practice them now. Other people are doing their spins and jumps and dancing. And 
I'm trying to do my figures quietly in the corner. But they're, they're one of those things where you really think they're wasted on the young, you know? Like, now adults can concentrate. Adult, you know, it is a very kind of meditative thing. And they're very beautiful when you actually get it right, you know? And so I am, I'm one of the ones, and I think there's lots of people who think that they shouldn't have been... Um, abandoned and of course they were abandoned for television yeah, and, yeah, yeah. The, and the cost and you know it took hours and hours a day for people to get them better so one of the most renowned figures in the in the history of figure skating is uh, the Norwegian skater Sonja Henny and uh, she's also a key figure in the story you tell of the gender history of the sport so could you talk about her please and her okay. place in your book yes She's quite something, and her her story, quite apart from the skating, is really interesting. And I hope somebody will do a dissertation on her. Uh, some, maybe somebody has a kind of cultural studies dissertation on her, but I haven't seen it. Sonia Henney is one of a really important piece of the argument I try to make about how skating turned from a predominantly masculine sport uh, art to something that is perceived to be more appropriate sport for young women. And so we have all sorts of things going on. For the, let me just do one backup, one step. There was, I think, a period for maybe a decade, maybe two decades, you'd want to argue, where figure skating was relatively, and relatively is important, and they're gender neutral. So women and men did the same things on the ice. They skated together on the ice. Their clothes were different, of course, but they were both at a very similar technical level. In the 1920s, what happens is there's um, an advance of the technical aspects of the sport that seems to be pushed by the women who are involved in the sport. And Sonia Henney was definitely one of these women at the time. She was a girl, and she wasn't the only girl who started early and was groomed to be a champion. But she was introduced to skating by her father, who was a... I believe, a champion bicycle racer. Is that what I said? I think so. And uh, he was an athlete, though, and very wealthy. And Sonia was raised to be a champion. She was taken out of school. She was kind of the figure that we imagine, in many, particularly in the United States, we imagine that you know all those young American girls who want to be skating champions, who have rich parents, who don't go to school, and they just skate all the time. You know, She was the first one. And uh, she first went to the Olympics at the age of 11, did very badly, but uh, was apparently already, it was evident that she was doing things differently. She is credited with being very athletic for the time, for skating, uh, jumping, spinning. She wore short skirts, which her older competitors, who would have been, some of them would have been married ladies in their 20s and 30s, uh, they weren't, they couldn't be seen in such clothing. And... uh, but she also is credited with being one of the one of the first. It's a bit of a myth that she was the first, but she was very important in the kind of choreography she introduced to skating. And she designed her free skating programs like dances. They were actually choreographed, which wouldn't have been the case for everybody before. They would have kind of, some of them would have been very um, improvised as people were skating. So Sonia Henney wins three Olympic medals. There's still nobody to have beat her uh, there, uh, 28, 32, 36. She wins 10 world championships. And uh, then what happened? And she has huge following. 
And then what happens is she retires from the sport and she decides she's going to be a movie star. There's all sorts of scandals about her amateur career that uh, are uh, very interesting. Uh, if people are interested in that, that kind of, you know, very juicy stories. But what she does is she goes to Hollywood or she goes to the United States. That's where you can turn into a star. She eventually ends up in Hollywood where her father organizes. He's her kind of business manager. He organizes some shows for her and they invite the whole uh, Hollywood, uh, all the studio people and anybody who's anybody in Hollywood comes and watch these shows. And within a few days, she has a contract with a movie studio. She goes on to star in... 10, I believe, Hollywood movies. Her popularity rivals Shirley Temple. She was in the late 30s. She was like the number two most popular star in Hollywood. And this is where, for middle class people who had not had the wherewithal to join an exclusive skating club, this was the first place that many people got to see figure skating was on the movie screen in a movie theater. And the skating that they got to see was Sonia Henney's. Sparkly costumes, jumping, spinning, skating quickly, but also on her toes with a little tiara, you know, um, a band of male kind of, you, you know, like a big Broadway musical kind of thing with, you know, men arranged behind her. Uh, always a love story of, in which she triumphs. They all live happily ever after, that sort of thing. So she's blonde. She's beautiful. She, and she's very cute also. Like, she's tiny, she's cute, she's pretty. Um, and so that becomes the image of skating that would have been the first image that many people would have seen. And apparently, you can read in the skating... There were skating magazines that already started being published by this time. And they are incredulous at the incredible growth of skating that comes in the wake of her popularity. So in the 1920s and 1930s, skating was done by upper middle class, upper class people in private clubs who were mostly adults. Sonia Henney comes and little girls, I guess, beg their mothers for skating lessons. The market for skates booms. Uh, skating rinks are being built. At the same time, you also have public funding going into the building of public resources. So, And one of those public resources in the United States was public skating rinks. And the WPA uh, funded the building of you know, many, many, many rinks around the United States. And skating clubs can then start forming in these public arenas. And so the age of skaters goes down. The gender of who's being attracted to skating changes. And at exactly the same time, you have the adult male skaters are going away from skating because it's the Second World War. And so you're losing the men and gaining a lot of young girls at the same time that the actual public image of the sport is changing. There's some other things, of course, going on with you know other skaters in other places, but I think Sonia Henney, particularly in North America, was absolutely key. And she was a businesswoman, uh, incredible, incredible businesswoman. Uh, you know, she started an ice show that then toured. Uh, her face would have been in advertisements. You know, she built arenas herself. So she actually helped construct uh, the skating infrastructure as well. And so by the time the war ends, 
it's like the image of skating has changed. And so um, it's not a place that, or it's not an activity that men are going to look at and say, oh, gee, maybe I'm going to take that up in the way that they might have done in the 1930s. So something that it seems like it's a key debate in the post-war period is this uh, question, is skating a, an artistic sport or an athletic art? So could you talk about how that really goes back and forth, not only with the observers of the sport, the people commenting on it, but also within the sport, among the skaters? Yes, and it actually, and this debate actually has ended up historically having a lot of implications for the scoring system, what breaks a tie, you know. Uh, that debate is why Brian Boitano won the Olympic gold medal in 1988 and not Brian Orser. Four years later, that debate um, played out differently. They changed the rules and it would have been a different result. So it's had very concrete effects for the sport. Early in the uh, 1900s, when the sport was becoming more widespread as an international sport, there was lots of discussion in the ISU about what would be prioritized, artisticness, expressiveness, aesthetics, or technical development. And at that time, I think from my own reading of the literature, it seems that what they were very concerned about is what I would say is class. They were concerned about maintaining that kind of veneer of eliteness of skating, of, of not appealing just to the masses, but this kind of arcane activity that they had involving all these uh, school figures, things that would be hard for people just watching to understand what was going on. There was kind of a sense that big jumps and elaborate spins was a bit garish and that that was, you know, that would have just been appealing to the masses. Um, we hear these arguments about things today, like dance performance or whatever, you know, don't just go to watch the guy jump really high. Look at the intricacies and, and we are connoisseurs and we understand how it's going. So it was a lot of that kind of argument. And, uh, and then there were also the people who really didn't want it to be a competitive sport and thought it should go in the direction of a performing art. Like there are incredible possibilities of a blade on the ice for how a person might express emotions artistically. Over the course of the 20th century, this debate goes back and forth and back and forth. I think where it's around the Second World War, the 1950s, and then going right into the 70s, you hear louder and louder voices arguing for more of an emphasis on sport. And it becomes very clear, certainly in the 1970s, that what they're arguing for is more emphasis on sport because that will attract men to the sport and it will kind of save the reputation in some ways of the men who are already skating. So already skating had that kind of perception of it's a girly thing to do. So maybe these guys aren't quite as athletic as other, as other male athletes. And so it's become a way of contrasting men's figure skating to women's figure skating. So we see that with Barbara and Scott and Dick Buttons, they're probably... You know, there, there are differences between their skating, but they are conceptualized very differently. Feminine skating, masculine skating, and that they shouldn't look the same. That would have been unheard of in the 1910s or in 1905. Um, then we also have this, this uh, binary between artisticness and athleticism in skating as a way of categorizing different skaters in a particular event. So if you think about the Olympics... Uh, the last Olympics in Vancouver, 
the Johnny Weir versus the Evan Lysacek or, you know, Jenny Plushenko versus whoever. You know, it's a way of saying, it's a way of trying to categorize skaters. And of course, depending on which culture you are participating in, in many of them, the athletic is valued more highly for men than the artistic. And so for some commentators, some journalists, it's a way of putting down certain male skaters to call them artsy or artistic or aesthetic. So I want to come up to the, the point, which was really the starting point for, for your research, and this is uh, what you call the macho turn in skating in, in the 1990s with, with Kurt Browning and Elvis Stoiko, these two Canadian champions. So cause you talk about what is a, a macho turn in figure skating. So this is where it started for me. But, you know, in that dentist office, I see this magazine, I hear or I read this line about macho and figure skating in the same sentence. And I am kind of surprised because I'm aware of the stereotypes at the time. It also seemed to me like that article, like many that I was to read later, was trying to represent to me Kurt Browning as this very manly thing, as a way of saying you know, he's not just a fanky figure skater. You need to pay attention to him because he's macho, right? And he had a little black beret and a black leather jacket on and stuff like that. So what I argue in the book is that there was a kind of, you know, and of course my own perspective as a Canadian, we had like these three Canadian, these three Canadian men who were world champions in a row. And so there's a very big contrast between the way they were taken up in the press and the time period isn't that different. So it's like, what's going on here? Brian Orser was a Canadian skater who was the world champion in 1987. He was widely represented in the press as a, you know, he, he was one of the first athletes who publicly talked about having a sports psychologist. He had a little entourage who traveled, which of course is totally standard for figure skaters now all, all figure skaters now but at the time you know he like cried publicly he's a very he was a very very pretty young man um he was represented as just a little bit fey in the press two years later you have uh and but the thing about brian orser he was known as the person who made the triple axel something that men had to do like two years later, you have Kurt Browning, who's not vastly different. He's, you know, he does a slightly different way of carrying himself, talking on the ice, you know, not particularly, uh, I think his early skating was not distinguished by that much, you know, uh, but he was the first person to land a quadruple jump in competition. He's represented in the press as this incredible thing that landed, luckily, in the lap of figure skating. He's going to save the sport for men. His father was a trail guide, in a, or a, his father is a rancher. Uh, um, you know, he grew up with horses. Uh, he's called the cowboy all the time in the press. There's pictures of him sitting on the back of the horse in one of those long, you know, the long coats that are supposed to keep the dust off you that hang over the back of the horse and everything, cowboy hat. The press has a field day with this because this is not their image of the figure skater that they think. And so sports journalists take up Kurt Browning in a way that they never would have taken up Brian Orser, right? And there's only a couple of years apart here. Then we get Elvis Stoiko on the scene. And very different 
way of skating on the ice, Elvis Duggo had um, criticized by many in the skating world of having um, not paid attention to the parts of the skating that were not the jumps. Incredible jumper, very, very consistent skater, strong. But he's taken up in the press as a dirt bike rider. He had a black belt in karate or kung fu. Like, he was a martial artist. And, you know, I talk about the one image uh, that uh, opened, is in a profile of him. There's not even a picture of him skating. We have a picture of him doing a flying karate kick, but no picture of him actually skating. So, uh, and Alva Stoiko is very vocal about his difference from other skaters and has been quoted as saying, I don't even have a feminine side, that sort of thing. So what, what all of this eventually overlaps with the time period of the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding uh, event and skating has a lot of popularity at that time. And the other thing, and so it's on TV, uh, it's, we're saturated with figure skating on television in the newspaper, that sort of thing. Marketers, agents come into the sport in a way they hadn't been in before. And I think they're part of this process of trying to change the image of male skaters. So, uh, you know, the, the big worry that everybody will think male skaters are gay and then they won't watch the TV shows, they won't buy the products that the skaters are endorsing, that sort of thing. At the same time, we have uh, the first decade of the HIV AIDS crisis and it becomes public knowledge that a lot of male figure skaters have died. And so this is a big crisis in the sport. Uh, it's made very, there's a lot of high profile articles in um, mainstream newspapers and the skaters and skating as an establishment want not to be associated with that. So there's all sorts of things happening here that leads to a kind of decade of male skaters trying maybe a little bit too hard and the people who package them sometimes it's not even the skaters themselves it's the way journalists talk about them or the way in the media or the coverage that you would watch of a skating competition the way they talk about them and how they photograph them and everything trying to construct them as very manly and masculine and macho and so i'd argue it was only about a uh, 10 or 15 years and we've seen it uh hopefully ease off again, um, partly because I think there's not so much at stake now. Skating's not as popular as it was uh, back then. But it, it became a very nice way for me to think about how do we try and construct masculinity where we think it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? So I want to ask about, you talked about the, the important role of the packagers, and how these these skaters were presented in the media. And and you have a line earlier in the book where you talk about figure skating is the most gendered of, of sports. And I was wondering how much of that is connected to, I, I see figure skating as, as a sport that's, in terms of watching it on TV, is so deeply set within narrative. At least the coverage we have of it here in the United States. Yeah. You know, we see in the Olympics... We see the top six skaters. We get a lot of profiles. We get a lot of uh, these these shots of the skaters kind of through the mist doing practice on, on empty spotlit rinks and so forth. And, and I remember a few years ago I was in Europe during uh, one of the, the Olympic years, and I watched the skating competition on television, and they showed all 25 of the skaters. The commentary was simply on the the technical aspects of the skate and it was it was a revelation because you saw 
this is a sport. You can see clearly the difference in abilities from skater 15 to skater 5, which which we don't get in the States. I don't know how it is on the CBC, but I'm wondering how much of that packaging in the coverage of figure skating shapes this, this gendered perspective of the sport. I think it's, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's very, very key because there are a few things that male skaters do that women's, that most women skaters don't do. There have, so quadruple jumps, for instance, like if, if we wanted to take a, I don't know if you made a little Venn diagram of all the things that skaters do on the ice. So on one side, there'll be a tiny sliver of things that men do that women don't do. And that's mostly a quadruple jumps and the triple axles. And on the other side, there's a small sliver of things that men don't do that women do. And uh, that would be, you know, the incredible, incredible spirals and arabesques. Some of the, some of the moves that have super, super strength and flexibility working together. Of course, there are men who do those and there are women who land quadruple jumps and who do triple axles. And yet, um, all of this other stuff that's overlapping in the middle, we still want to make uh, arguments that there are male ways of doing them and, and female ways of doing them. One of the ways that we do that is by uh, telling stories about the people who do them. And I'm familiar, you know, we of course get uh, U.S. networks here and I'm familiar... NBC, I'd have to say, is probably the worst in this kind of profiling thing. And one of the things about the the, pro, the profiles or these uh, little special segments on the individual um, skater or athlete, they're extremely expensive, right? You know, you have to travel, you have to go places. Like it's it's much cheaper coverage to just turn the cameras on a particular event. Of course, you know, lots happens after the cameras go on, but. Uh, it is very uh, complicated, and one can't think that there is not a lot of thought into how these things are framed and 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 shaped, and the profiles themselves shaped. So there's all sorts of ways that we try and, or we try that the broadcasters try to shape our viewing of skaters. So one of them is these profiles that are. Um, which uh, other researchers have argued, I think, quite convincingly, that that's one of the ways that the networks think they're going to pull women into uh, sporting audiences. If you just showed the women, um, whether it's a football game or whether it's a figure skating competition, they need the stories, especially the sad, tear-jerker kind of stories, to maintain their interest in what they're watching unfold in the competition. Uh, The other thing that, of course, the broadcasters do is they have the color commentary, that shapes the way we we listen to what's going on. Notice the next time you're watching figure skating, uh, the use of first names that you wouldn't see in other sports. Uh, you also have commenters. Uh, choreographers are very popular as uh, color commentators on skating comps. Often they are uh, they're commenting on people with whom they have worked individually. Like that would be. That would be unheard of in other sports. So there's a very kind of familiar stuff, which is kind of infantilizing. And and that is feminizing, of course. There's also the thing about just putting the name of the music across the bottom of the screen. All sorts of ways of framing up how it is that we're going to watch what the people are doing on the ice. And then, of course, there's all the rules in the sport around costuming and... Uh, 
the different kind of movements that the skaters are required to do. The spiral sequence, for instance, the men are not required to do that. Don't we want men to be flexible too? Like you think, what is underlying that rule, right? It is, it is about expectations of what the gender of the different kinds of athletes should look like on the ice. So I want to ask a question that gets, that gets away from the book, but I think it does <laughs> connect to your main arguments. And uh, uh, so years ago, I, I have a young son. He's small. He's strong. He's fearless. I thought he would be a perfect gymnast. So I brought him to mm-hmm. gymnastics lessons and go to the gym, and it is all little girls yeah. and, and female instructors and moms watching and uh, and my son at the time he he was kind of you know he had fun doing the doing the drills and so forth but but it was clear he didn't want to be in this kind of all female environment and and it struck me that gymnastics is really a female dominated sport yet we don't view male gymnasts as effeminate and we don't suspect male gymnasts of being homosexual. So why is that? Why is it that the case with figure skating, but not with gymnastics, which is in the same way a a sport dominated by women? I think that's a really good question. And I think, you know, there's certainly there certainly are some assumptions made about male divers and male gymnasts. But I think you're absolutely right. Not to the same extent. And I wonder if that's because um, in school, uh, I think this used to be the case. I assume it is now that boys and fathers and you know most men are exposed in some way to um you know trying to do something on the ring and they actually see themselves how hard it is of course with male gymnasts we see the uniforms that they wear we see those shoulders and those biceps and it's very i mean in that if there's one thing that defines masculinity in our culture it's big shoulders and biceps right and so you know there's that guy doing the iron cross on your television screen you see that muscle there's not the kind of, and of course there are differences in male and female gymnastics that that um, uh, emphasize the differences between what the men and the women are doing. Of course, why don't the men use music in their floor routines, you know, and the women do? Why don't men do balance beam? Why don't women, you know, like they have, they have the parallel bars and the uneven bars, you know, that they have all sorts of things to emphasize the difference in the sport. I think the main thing with skating is that it appears more like dance. And that's kind of the bottom line. In you know, and this is a culturally specific thing. Particular styles of dance and artisticness in our culture are assumed to be more feminine. And that this is not a way for a man to use his body in public. So uh, there's also, so the the use of facial expressions by skaters, the fact that they have music, they wear costumes. They, there's been arguments for decades that all skaters should just show up in like a black outfit from head to toe. And you know, I have a bit of sympathy for that for other reasons. I think it looks nice, you know, like, but it's, um, it's about the explicit artisticness and that you're, you are being assigned marks and could win or lose based on your aesthetic. And that's why there's so much debate over what breaks the tie, the presentation mark or the technical mark. And that, that changes, that's gone back and forth about 20 times, you know, and 
the notion that uh, a man would be performing to be looked at by others, that, may, you know, it should make people nervous. I mean, I think it's probably the worst five minutes in sport, right? Or four and a half minutes, like, you know, thousands of people staring at you do this thing where everybody can tell that you're going to do when you do something wrong. It's very, very uh, graphic. But there is something about being on display that isn't really about heterosexual manliness, you know, that uh, part of the, you know, you just look at the advertisements and the different facial expressions on the male and the female models and that sort of thing about who should be looked at in our culture. And, um, and it's also that there is, most of us, I think, who like skating, like it because it's beautiful. And whether a person is trying to look beautiful on the ice or not, there is something so aesthetically pleasing about the person gliding over the ice. And, you know, lots of men don't want their sons to be looked at as beautiful. And um, I think that's a bit wrong-headed, you know? Like, it's that would be a great thing if more people thought that, right? Rather than hoping that they have big biceps or, or whatever. So we're almost out of time, Mary Louise. I want to ask a question about, uh, about skating and about the future of skating for, for girls and women in, in Canada. And, uh, you know, so when you and I grew up skating... Uh, I grew up skating with hockey skates. You grew up skating with figure skates. And so the gender difference was clear. You know, my skates were tough. You know, they have torn leather. Yeah. And and your skates, you know, had the tapered boot. They, they had this more, uh, the thinner blade. They were more delicate. And there were also different ways that you and I learned how to skate. Mm-hmm. Hockey skaters skate in one way. Figure skaters skate in mm-hmm. another way. So this, these gender differences you talk about in the book... They're they're clear right from the start from when boys and girls put on skates. Yeah. Now, I know it's the case here in the U.S. and I imagine it's the case in Canada. A lot of young girls are starting out on the ice in hockey skates. So, what do you see as uh, how is that going to affect the future of figure skating for girls and for women? Uh, it's a really good question. You know when. My dad was not a figure skater, but like, you know, joined the skating club when he was an adult with small children and he would have bought black figure skates to do his kind of, you know, skating around in. So he eventually learned more, but just skating around. And I think in the early part of the 20th century, even men would have bought mm-hmm, figure skates. Mm-hmm. It's just the skates to kind of skate around on, not to become a figure skater. And, uh, you know, that's. It's even for male figure skaters, it's very difficult to get skates now. They have to be special order. At the skating store in the town where I live, you have to order the men's. They have very small stock of male figure skates. But the whole question about the white skating boot is it's it's an endangered object, really, outside of uh, skating clubs. And, you know, the... The girls who you see skating on public rink, there's a rink by the city hall in the wintertime in the town where I live. You know, the girls have hockey skates on mostly, um, not necessarily because they are hockey players, but those are the skates that people buy now. In some sense, this means that skating is going back in some ways to becoming this more exclusive kind of set off thing. It's something if you wanted... and. And the actual skating that you do on those skates has to be very different. Like when I skate on hockey skates, 
because the blade is so rockered, every time I turn around backwards, I literally, I fall flat on my face. You have to have your weight quite mm-hmm. bent over. And this is where we get back into the class implications of the movements. Figure skates, to have them work, you need to stand up straight. You have to, you know, it's a very kind of, um, I think it feels to people who are learning as adults, for instance, kind of a snooty way of standing. You know, you have to go up like this. And so I, I actually... I don't now that there are more opportunities for girls to do different kinds of sport and you know that is one of the uh one of the main points of the book is that girls and I'm not the only person to have said this and sport isn't the only area we see it in but girls have expanded the range of sports they do to such a great extent the skating club or ice skate little girls will come in to for their figure skating lesson after they've had their rugby game at school mm-hmm. right we don't see that with boys we don't, you know, you have boys who do do a range of things, but the majority of boys do not try the sports that they consider girls sports. And so, I don't know, the kind of, the less uh, evidence of figure skating is just something that everybody could learn to do as kind of a social fun thing is in a way, um, I'm, you know, in some ways, it's not so much the girls I'm concerned with here. It restricts the possibility for boys to try something different, right? And that's really the project here is how do we expand the range of ways that boys can think of what it means to be a boy? We have enough boys who think that big biceps and, you know, creaming somebody on the on the hockey rink or the football field is like a great way of expressing their masculinity and there are a lot of bad implications of that it's not you know i'm like i'm all for team sports i'm for contact sports everything this isn't a very simplistic knee-jerk uh reaction but i do think boys should have other ways of expressing themselves and um whether it's skating or dance or singing in a choir things that are perceived by many young men and boys as being too faggy for them and uh, we like to think that as ideas around sexuality and gender expand you know uh you know greater expansion of rights for lesbian and gay people and all that that it will change some of these ideas but in some ways you know all the discussion lately about bullying in schools ideas about what's appropriate gender are still very, very, very strong. And so I think we need to think really creatively about how we change those things. So I'll ask you to finish up. What are you working on now? Well, I've started two projects. They're both at very, very, very beginning stages. The one that I'm a little bit more interested in, I'm trying to think of a way of framing up a kind of um, both a cultural history of walking as exercise in a way that becomes a kind of critique of the medicalization of walking in our current life. Um, walking as an intervention in public health, um, promoted always in a way that seems to take away everything that might uh, inspire somebody to want to walk. Um, and the other project that I'm just starting is kind of an oral history uh, with feminists who were involved in the 1970s, say late 60s, 70s, early 80s, of trying to change sport and infuse sport with some feminist principles and what were they trying to accomplish and what do they actually think has happened over the past 20 or 30 years. All right. Well, Mary Louise, thank you for coming on New Books and Sports. I I enjoyed the book and enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks very much for asking me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Mary Louise Adams about her book, Artistic Impressions, Figure Skating, Masculinity, 
and the Limits of Sport, published in 2011 by the University of Toronto Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from East European studies to East Asian studies. If you like what you heard here, please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can offer your comments and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week. Thank you.